Hi, this is Tom Darling, your host for Conversations with Classic Boats. When we started this podcast in May 2020, our mission was all about the boats. Interview classic boats and their owners. And we've done that from the 1914 Harrisoff Newport 29 Dolphin, the winningest boat, to 1938's Goose, the Owen Stevens six-meter with its old transom tacked to the wall of Sawanica Corinthian Yacht Club. But what about their creators? Not just their owners, but their designers and builders. We thought we needed to broaden a bit. These groups have classics among them. Iconic, memorable, durable. We think that we should on occasion stretch the envelope a bit. That's why in the first two Olarian sessions last year, we probed the mysteries of Captain Nat, and in the recent quartet of podcasts on the International Six Meter, the long-lasting genius of Owen J. Stevens. And that train of thought brought us to our own sailing generation, the baby boomers. And we thought, what is iconic? What is classic in our sailing time on the water? And it came to us. J-boats, starting with the J-24 in 1977, with two brothers, extending into a multiple-generation enterprise that designed its own boats, upended the long marine tradition of full integration, outsourcing its manufacturing, and finally, marketing boats with consumer thinking from packaged goods and the car industry. All in all, a new recipe for the boating industry. And who better to interview than the two J's of J-Boats, Bob and Rod? We'll hear from them. Bob, the oldest, the marketer. Rod, the younger, the designer. Full disclosure, we share an alma mater. Bob is Princeton, class of 1956. Rod, 1958. Their father was Princeton class of 32. And in the group of pioneering intercollegiate sailors that followed behind Arthur Knapp, class of 1928, to found college sailing. A quick summary of J-Boats. Born, 1977. Children, 58. Boats built and sold, roughly 17,000. Largest fleets, J-24, the boat that launched boomer keelboating and the J-70, J-24's modern reincarnation. I have a theory. I grew up in a boating household that was immersed in the sailboat and occasionally motorboat manufacturing industry. What is my premise? My premise is that in any era of boating growth, be it Harrisoff or Stevens or Johnstone, there are key assumptions made, consciously or not, that produce success factors for any high growth period of boating. The growth came in post-war and rapidly changing times. A leader captured certain trends that the hyper-successful enterprise was able to use to make themselves a long-lived company. From 1874 to the 1920s, that enterprise was HMC, the Harrisoff Manufacturing Company. 1,500 designs, 
responsible for about 5,000 boats built directly or through other manufacturers. The designer behind the development of the 20th century day sailor. With a virtual stranglehold on mega racing yachts until the massive J-boats arrive in the 1930s. We've talked about Harrisoff quite a bit in prior podcasts. Now, I put before you my proposition. Are the Johnstowns, the modern wizards of Little Rhodey, launching in 1977 and running today with the next generation? Don't they represent the design, engineering, and marketing genius capturing lightning in a bottle, just as Captain Nat did? Every boat company has its creation myth, which gets worked and reworked, depending on the longevity and success of the business and the involvement of the founders. I grew up with such a situation. That was Pearson Yachts, two cousins, Everett and Clint, brown grads from an illustrious group of Rhode Island sailors that included Tom Hazelhurst, who was the madman, I mean, the advertising madman of the boating industry, and Kenny and Brad Reed's father, Ed. Yes, it was a time of larger-than-life characters. Grumman, my father's employer, bought Pearson Yachts in the early 1960s. My father was going to be the accountant. It always seemed to us that he was in reality running the place. Soon the company moved from its starting spot in the Harrisoff Yards across the Mount Hope Bridge to Portsmouth in a spanking new plant at a location we call Bend, itself the site of torpedo boat training from the Second World War. By the early 1990s, 18,000 boats or so later, Pearson had become part of boating history. It started with the pioneering Triton, the first mass-manufactured boat, and eventually was only a whistle-stop on the rocky trail of the laser. But before we check in with the brothers, a word on our partners and the introduction of a new one. Windcheck Media, with Windcheck Magazine, covering the waterfront from New York to Cape Cod. Their February and March issues had our two-part story on Finisterre and Fidelio, the SNS twins. Coming up in the June issue, we'll have a wrap of our four-episode podcast on the International Six Meter, with all of its epic designs and sailing characters. You'll see information on it on the website, in Winchek's ship's log. And mark your calendar for the Connecticut Boat Show in Essex, Connecticut. Obviously, April 30 to May 2, we'll be there, fully vaxxed, to meet you, our podcast fans. Check it all out on the website, winchek.com. And Team One Newport, providing all the latest gear for you, the performance sailor. Looking forward to a, say, quote, normal summer? Mad Martha has all the brands, including the brand new North Sales clothing line. Designed by Keith Musto's son, great foul weather lineage. Check it out and see our notices in the Team One email blasts. Brave Martha is out on the road at the St. Petersburg Nude and Charleston Race Week. Racing sailing is back. Stay safe. See it all at TeamOneNewport.com. And a new editorial partner for us, 
Spin Sheet, the media group that covers the Mid-Atlantic from Annapolis. Look for our classic boat pieces in the back of the magazine. You Chesapeake Bay sailors can also use the QR symbol in the magazine to go directly to the Conversations with Classic Boats podcast. Now sailors from Carolinas to Cape Cod have easy access to the Conversations podcast library. So, first a little backstory on the Johnstones. In PJ, pre-J24 days, brothers Bob and Rod Johnstone were exceptional racing sailors from Stonington, Connecticut. For those of you keen on history, Stonington made its mark repelling a British naval invasion in the War of 1812 and then becoming the hub of South Atlantic seal hunting, a kind of Nantucket for huge furry marine mammals. Together, they were Sears Cup National Junior Championship finalists. Bob went on to win the Venezuelan Sunfish U.S. National Rainbow and Penguin Internationals and campaigned to Soling for the 1972 Olympic trials. That's diverse. Rod was closer to home in eastern Connecticut, known for winning off-soundings at a variety of other cruising boat events. They came to J-Boats from two different directions. Bob was a 43-year-old veteran of American consumer goods conglomerate Quaker Oats, here and in Latin America. He came back to be VP Marketing for AMF Elkort, the boat part of the bowling giant, best known for the classic sunfish. His contribution to competitive sailing came also in the form of running the first 1973 Youth Championships. At 40, Rod was the designer in the company. He started as a history teacher and a student of the West Lawn School of Yacht Design, then working at nearby Groton's Electric Boat Company and selling ad space for the venerable large-format Soundings magazine while starting a sailing school in Essex multitasking. Soundings frequently featured new designs with emerging designers. Rod wrote about them. But in the slow times of the mid-1970s, Rod got tired of, some, of waiting for someone to build one of his designs. So he went it alone, and the J-24, as we know it, was born on a shoestring in his Stonington garage. It was ragtime. The prototype of the J-24 which out of the box won 14 times and 16 starts. This was a backyard goose, the six-meter rocket of 1938, a handcrafted dolphin. In 1977, the J-24 was born. For a lot of us boomers, the J-24 was a really big deal. I have a lot of questions for Bob and Rod, which I posed on what I call the creation myth of the boat. How did it really get built? What was the story with Everett Pearson, with TPM? To me, J-Boats always epitomized the idea of a virtual boat company, 100% away from Harrisoff a century before. And if boats were analogous to cars, what were they? The Dodge Brothers, maybe? No, more like Lee Iacocca and the Mustang. Because the J-24 was the Mustang of the boomer sailors, the college sailors, men and women, who poured out in the 1970s looking for a boat to buy. 
a boat they could split with their friends. For the former college laser sailor, this was the new, new thing. It was fast, and you could take your friends as a crew. And it looked very cool, like a 505 on steroids, with plenty of side hull for an exotic name. So now, without further ado, it's all Johnstones for the next 40 minutes. Recorded via Zoom, the day before April Fool's Day, 2021. So thanks very much to uh, Bob Johnstone and Rod Johnstone for coming on the show today. Um, my history is Bob I've known not so long, Rod I've known a long time, but we're really here to hear the whole, what we consider the classic story of one of the great classic boat companies of the last era. And without further ado, uh, I'm going to turn it over to you guys for the next 43 minutes. This is recorded via Zoom. The day before April Fool's Day, 2021. Fire away. Okay, well, I'd like to start with, with um, how I decided to come up with the uh, J24 back in 19... We actually made that decision back in 1974. But I want to talk a little bit about the fact that all the way through up until today, the uh, whole story about J-boats and the J24 is all basically a a family affair. I mean, everything to do with this company up to the present day has been very much rooted in, in our family, Bob's immediate family and my immediate family particularly, but also other branches like my sister's branch and my younger brother John's branch. Our father was a Sears Cup champion in 1926. Actually, he was runner-up in the National Sears Cup uh, representing our Watawana Club here in Stonington which we've been members, I've been a member of all my life. And he taught us to sail and he built a boat in the garage, a lightning class loop, which we all really learned to uh, hone our racing skills on because it was the heaviest lightning in the, in the, in the uh, Stonington fleet by far. It weighed uh, 260 pounds over the minimum weight limit. And shortly, not too many years later, after this was in 1947, we launched that boat and and after, afterwards, in 19, uh, from 1950 to 54, we were, became fairly precocious sailors. I mean, Bob, Bob represented us in National Champions Sears Cup, I believe, in 1950 and 51. Bobette was the helmsman of the crew that steered the Wad Club to the Adams Cup finals in Maine in 1952, only to find out that they wouldn't let her steer in the, in the finals because she, she wasn't 18 years old yet. And then I sailed in two Sears Cups in the following years of 1953 and 54. So the sailing genes sailing are pretty strong in our family. Anyway, fast forward to, uh, to uh, when I graduated from Princeton, uh, Arthur Knapp invited me to try out for the America's Cup on the Weatherly. And I declined because I was getting married. But, but I, I did go and witness one of the first defense uh, regattas at the New York Yacht Club cruise. And uh, we were lined up alongside of four, all four of the def uh, potential defenders, Weatherly, Columbia, Vim, and uh, Easterner. And it was blowing about 25 and we were sailing along. I was on a, on a uh, 
30 square meter, which belonged to my neighbor, V. Drake. And uh, we were watching it from the lurid side and, and as they started on a reach off of West Chop he heading, heading west. And we were commenting on how the boats were being sailed and what was going on and how the sails were being trimmed. And we got to uh, about 10 minutes and we were still alongside them. We were going just as fast as they were. And we all we had up was our uh, tall, skinny little mesa on that boat. And it just made me realize for as far as keel boats goes that you could have a fast keel, but it didn't have to be as big as a 12 meter. Anyway, um, we, that was one, that was a big turning point for me. And another turning point was sailing on a thistles with, with a guy named Dick Brainerd, who in 1952 and 53, and he'd, he'd won the, um, he had won the Thistle North Americans actually in 1953. But anyway, so we hey, Rod, just to just to interject, just to interject, you know, we we're a Thistle family, the Darlings. Yeah. My father built number 1079 in the in the in the in, in the driveway, not even the garage, okay, in South Huntington. So right. great things come from Thistle sailors. Right. And I can take next two hours talking about Dick Brainerd and sailing thistles with them, but I won't. Anyway, uh, I graduated from, uh, from Princeton in, in 58. And, and I've got, uh, I've got, to, I've got to insert another little thing here too, um, that I championed um, Sandy Douglas to be inducted in the National Sailing Hall of Fame. And he was a Dartmouth graduate. Oh, great. Well, anyway, uh, I, I became, uh, I went through the artillery school and I didn't really, I was a history major at Princeton and I was always interested in boat design and just sort of done it on the side, but I, I didn't realize that I had uh, any particular math ability until I got to, was the top of my class at the artillery school in Fort Sill, Oklahoma. And then I went and started teaching history at the Millbrook school and found out my mind wandering to boat design. So I, I, I uh, started building boats in my garage at Millbrook and I actually joined, I decided I didn't know as much as I really needed to know. So I, I signed up for the West Lawn School of Yacht Design in 1960 when I was teaching. And by the time after two years and going through most of the course, I decided to leave and, and become a boat designer and, Stone, and I left and went to Stonington. Uh, and um, that was, uh, Took me a while. It took me 15 years to get my act together as far as getting a boat that that anybody cared about, and that was the became the J24. But but what really what really got me keyed into designing boats is that when I married Lucia, my second wife in 1971, she really, really was interested in sailing, and 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 we went we bought a 505 and went sailing for racing for a year on that and had a lot of fun and the, the reason it was a lot of fun was mainly because it would get us away from all five of our kids our large family at that time and uh, have some fun sailboat racing uh, we were we were a little too big a little too small for the boat Lucia wasn't heavy enough on the wire and I didn't want to get on the wire and she didn't want to steer so we sold the boat and got a 470 and of the new Olympic class of 470s. And we did, we did well with that boat. But uh, at the end of the season in 1973, uh, Lucia decided she didn't want to sail on the boat anymore. And 
which I thought at the time was great because I had my, we were too heavy for that boat. And my uh, 13 year old son who only weighed, uh, Jeff who only weighed 95 pounds, uh, the perfect trapeze man when I ever blew anything up to 12 knots. And then when it blew more than that, he was a good enough helmsman. So I would get on the wire and he would steer. And uh, that worked extremely well. But the problem was, um, even though we won, like we were, we were just totally psyched after winning a race at the North Americans by over five minutes in fairly light to moderate air against 80 boats. And we were just giddy with our, uh, with our success. And, and we were all the way home from Association Island to Stonington, we were talking about how we were gonna go to the Olympics and we were gonna practice and everything. And it was all kind of, you know, la-la land because, because it was totally unrealistic. I had to make a living. I was working for soundings and, um, and Jeff had to uh, go, go. He was, that was his first year away at school. He went away to school to Loomis and this is in the fall of 74. And, uh, and so my, my sailing career was coming to an end because we were, Lucia wouldn't sail on the boat anymore. We came home, Jeff and I got home from that regatta and it only took about two minutes for my balloon or our balloon to get totally deflated, you know, because it wasn't like Lucia and I going away, leaving the kids with everybody. It was, it was Jeff and I going away and leaving Lucia with all the kids. And that, that went over like a lead balloon. So uh, anyway, we, that's when I decided I had to, I had to come up with a boat to, uh, to uh, get the whole family on, on the one boards with a lot of, a lot of deck space and, you know, people could walk around on the boat while we were sailing and we could go sailboat racing and put the whole family on the boat. And that was the idea. And that's what started. And, but then the problem was, how do I start? I wanted to, I decided to build a boat myself in the garage, uh, but I had to get permission. So we, I did. And I had, I had one bay of the garage, Lucia's, Lucia's Volkswagen, you got to stay in the other th third bay. And in the middle was all the, all the tools and everything and bicycles and everything else that was in the garage and stuff I needed to build the boat. So, so that's where we started. And, um, and the whole idea was just to have a boat for us. It wasn't to have a boat to go uh, beat the world, but we wanted, I wanted a boat that could go to windward. I wanted a boat, uh, um, you know, being a former 5-0 thistle sailor, I, I needed a, a boat that would really go well all the time and, and, and be controllable. Uh, and be just fun to sail. And, and that's where I, and then our garage was 28 feet long and, and the door was nine feet wide. So you, and I wanted the biggest boat we could do. So that's what we did. And then the, the question was, you know, while I was selling uh, ads, uh, one of the, the, the only person that really came up in terms of building the boat during the six years that I was, uh, that I was selling ads for soundings after 1971 was, uh, one of my clients was Everett Pearson at Tillerson Pearson, and he is, he was doing some amazing stuff back in the early 70s. He was like building all these tanks, these storage tanks for the U.S. Navy that had to be just the right amount of uh, uh, glass to, to, to resin ratios and all this kind of thing. And, and he was the only one building boats at that time who was scientific about the materials he was using. And so, Rod, Rod of course, you know that, you know, Ned's grandfather, my father, at that point was involved in Pearson yachts. Right? Oh yeah, exactly. Well, I met I met your 
I actually met Wells back when uh, I was and he was I, I was selling ads to Bill Shaw at Pearson too, Pearson mm -hmm. Yachts too. And I did a I did a I was the design editor for Soundings for the whole time I was there because nobody else on the on, on sound at Soundings knew anything about sailboat racing. So I got to do all the sailboat racing articles and and uh, and uh, I remember doing a uh, introduction as a, uh, a design section on the Pearson 365. Right, that which was, was my father's first cruising boat after he got rid of his racing boats. So yeah. we're going to segue to Bob. We'll come back to some of these topics at the end. I always thought that the J24 looked like a big 505. So now you've, filled, now you've explained that mystery to me. It, it, well, there's, there's a lot of 505 in, the, in that design, yeah. Right. So there, let's go to yeah. Bob. And then we'll come back at the end for some questions. Okay. All right. Great. Thanks yeah. so much. How is it over the past 44 years, J-Boats managed to introduce 51 designs, sell 15,000 boats in 35 plus countries, with a total retail value in 2018 dollars of almost one and a half billion dollars. Five designs became world sailing international classes more than any other brand. 23 were awarded boat of the year by sailing world or cruising world. 35% or more of race week entries across the US are J boats. J-Boats have won either class or overall in just about every major offshore race in the world. The J-Boats Harvard Business School case asks, how did this happen with five or six employees? I can think of a dozen reasons. First, as Rod described, a passion for sailboat racing was in the family DNA. Uh, and he covered the Sears Cup with sailing with dad. He was on the Princeton sailing teams of 1929 and 1930. He had me helm my first race at age two. He was so psyched about having his family get involved in the sport. And 24 years later, this, this legacy carried on. Rod sailed with Mary and me to a seventh place in the 1971 Sailing World Championships. And as Rod described, we both then sailed 470s in 1972 and for a couple of years with our wives as crew. All day in a wetsuit, Rod's wife, Lucia, rebelled. The solution, a larger boat to fit the whole family. The second factor is that baby boomers were looking for a fast family boat to sail in street clothes. Um, among the 70 million, let me get over here. Among the 70 million Americans in, 19, in the 1960s and early 70s, there were 100,000 new sailors that were coming on to the, um, getting into boats like Sunfish, Hobies, Lasers, and Snarks off the beach. And eventually they wanted to share their new sound, found fun with their family without freezing in a bathing suit. And they reached the same conclusion that Rod did. Um, they needed a, a larger boat that they could sail in their street clothes and include the whole family. The, um, 
The next factor, the third factor was a best performing brand strategy was confirmed when as director of market strategy and analysis at Quaker Oats Company, we were looking for at recreational product acquisitions. Remember Jean-Claude Keeley holding up his Rossi skis um, after a win? Even beginners would pay more to get Rossi's thinking they'd ski better. So to have a fast boat and advertise a fast boat and a race winning boat would attract not only the, the, the people who were dedicated sailors wanting to upgrade their performance, but also beginners because it would make them sail better. The, um, the fourth factor was market research confirmed the potential. In 1975, I had walked into my job at AMF Outboard as VP Marketing with a three-year plan to introduce a 20 to 30 foot performance sailboat to leverage AMF's huge sunfish franchise in inland lakes and resorts. AMF was missing out on 80% of America's population in cold water metro areas. So I, in order to convince them of coming out with this product, I conducted market research. And in that market research, um, it showed that the result was 50% of sailors planning to buy a boat over 20 feet in the next three years would buy either an AMF 7.3, there was a photograph of Rod's ragtime, or a far one quarter tonner, uh, 45 South, neither of which existed. AMF didn't want to invest in new products. So Rod had this great design. I had the confirmation that a boat like that could get a significant share of the market. But what about the money? Um, the key to my involvement, what made it possible for me to quit my $35,000 job at AMF, invest in the J-Boats startup and work full-time at it until J-Boats made enough money so Rod could quit his soundings job was an in-house, and this is the fifth factor, an in-house venture capitalist. Mary had done such a good job growing Naturescapes, a photo mural company I'd started prior to joining AMF. She was earning $150,000 a year to support this new venture. J-Boats Inc. was founded with two assets, my $25,000 and Rod's 1976 garage built design. And, and, and Bob, Mary is your wife, correct? Mary's my wife. Boy, a wife is venture capitalist. That's a new one. <laughs> Everett, Everett was also persuaded by the research. So after, after joining Rod. Hey, Bob, hey Bob, let's back up a little bit because I think uh, we were already, we had already started building, we had already agreed to build a boat with Everett before you even did the research. So that's not quite right. Well, I don't, whatever you did, I, I have no knowledge of that. But as far as I knew, when I met you and um, when you convinced me to come up and sail this boat, and when we um, had put it in the research, you were, you were hopeful and I was hopeful that AMF would go forward and have a boat like yours, even your boat. I was trying to get them to use your boat uh, in the, um, in the uh, to build. So I don't understand why you think that uh, 
you already had an agreement with Everett to build a boat before uh, we ran the research or before when I did you, When did you actually run that research? That research was run in the late summer, early, early fall of 1976. So here okay. we are, we're, we're just past the recession of the 70s, right? I mean, it was a tough recession, early 70s to 75. I got out of college in 75, so I can remember it wasn't hard, easy to get a job then. And so, so then you launch it. I distinctly remember the, the, the conversation we had after winning. The, you got, talked me to come, come sail this boat, Rod. It's really great, or Bob. And I came up there. We won the race. We were venture to come up and sail it, right? The party, I guess it was late August sometime, um, on, up at Fisher's Island. And Eddie Maxwell came up and said, "Hey, Bob, or Rod, I'd like to get one of those boats." And you said, "Well, you can't because the, this is the only one." And then I, afterwards, I said, "Hey, Rod, you know, think about this. There's a you got potential here." Um, so. <laughs> in and, and tell you when by what was happening when when this was going on and that's that's just that uh everett pearson was telling me back in july because i went and saw him to sell him ads every month he was telling me back in july that that uh skip Etchells and he were talking about about he was familiar with what i was doing because i would take my model around and show all my ad clients what i was doing but so he knew what i was trying to do and he's he said, and he knew about the boat because he'd been reading about it in the Providence Journal. And I, I, when I, when I asked him in in, in July, when he when could he, if he was interested in the boat, he said, yeah, he'd come and see it sometime. And then when I went to see him in on the in the August meetings, he he said two weeks after Labor Day, I'm going to come up and take a look at your, I'm going to come to Stonington and take a look at your boat. And that's what he did. When you and I sailed the boat, it was actually Labor Day weekend, uh, about two weeks before that. So there's a lot of, so we were sort of work, working on par parallel uh, uh, courses here, but we, and we wound up having it all come together. But uh, it was it, that's what it was. It was a parallel course. You were you were interested in the boat after you sailed on it on Labor Day weekend, and Everett was already planning to come up and see if he wanted to build it. So it all came together almost at once. So this is uh, this is very interesting because you know we see in in boats with history, um, what we call the creation myth. You know, people come back and try to recall what they did and who was involved, but they're always for every boat company has this creation myth. Let me go on with my story here. You know, Rod's my recollection is my recollection, um, but as soon as I got involved and, and made the commitment to join um, Rod uh, and create this company. The first issue was, um, and, and Everett, Everett brought it up, Rod was making $200 per boat uh, at whatever selling price he was thinking of selling it for. And we were selling him. We already sold him. Um, and well, anyway, the deal with Everett was $200 a boat. And so I said, hey, let's, let's, let's review this thing and what the potential is. So I went to TPI, sat down with Everett, and Everett said, Bob, um, how, how, much, how many boats can you sell in the first year? And I mean, Rod was at this point, you know, on his own doing stuff. And I said, well, Everett, I've got the research um, that says the, the product has a 50% share potential. Um, you know, Rod's got a fast boat. Um, 
the most anybody has ever sold up to now for a boat under $10,000 was the O'Day uh, 25 by Bangor Punta, and they sold 250. So if you can, if you can produce this boat for less than $10,000 and provide a dealer margin of 20%, which is not 200 bucks, but 1,780 bucks, then uh, I think we got a great program going. That's, that's great. Let me, because uh, we, I want to make sure we have enough time to talk about a lot of the things, Bob, you have. But so if I'm summarizing where you were, the boat was ready, designed. You had, just so people know in the audience, Everett is Everett Pearson, who was one of the two founders of Pearson, two cousins who went to Brown together, Clint and Everett Pearson. Um, so you were really set up to go forward and introduce what was really a pretty radical new boat, right, for this market. Correct. Well, let me, let me, let me keep going here. Um, the other factor was going with the seventh factor was going with local dealers. Um, the key to selling boats um, was proven by 150 Sunfish dealers and by Hobie Laser and small cruiser brands like Catalina O'Day, Ericsson and Morgan. Other than the CNC, the designs we competed against, Washeen 24 and 29, Santa Cruz 27, Moore 24, etc., were all sold by backyard builders, basically. And starting new, a new brand is tough. You don't know where the business will take hold. Before Block Island Race Week, we'd only sold one boat in Narragansett Bay, one boat in Stonington area, none in the yachting strongholds like Marblehead or Annapolis. But hey, soon, Bob, that's true, let, sorry. Let me, let, me fin let me finish. Okay. But, but soon we sold 100 boats in Texas. When Rod and I planned our, J20, planned our J24s past Peterson 34s, which were the hottest IOR boat at the time and the round the island race to finish one, two in the Morsi class in the 1977 Block Island Race Week, J24 went viral. A crazy bunch of Texans who had been trailing their IOR quarter tonners with bunks to different lake each weekend for a chilly cook-off, sleeping on the boats, all of a sudden saw that they could have a boat they all could sail together evenly. And that's why all of a sudden we sold 100 boats in Texas. The eighth factor is we, we continue to focus on our niche, fun to sail, family, offshore, one designs. Boats stay the same. The longer life of a rigid Baltic cord hull that didn't distort with frequent trailering, that had strict one design rules, and not going to the CNC quick money route, making a boat a little faster each year, put the J24 ahead of all other one design classes in terms of fair racing. The other factor is we stuck to our guns in terms of coming up with boats that were not intimidating, that all members of the family could sail so local fleets could grow. You can't have a strong one design class nationally based on traveling one designs like Melges 24s or or, or um, think of another 470s that just get one design at major regattas and not and don't have big local fleets. So having a family boat that everybody could get excited about was key to that. And then the other factor was offshore one design safety. Two things. One, families could have more adventures beyond the local harbor, which one designs like lightnings and shields and so on did not offer. 
Um, you couldn't go out there, you know, you couldn't go out in shields in a, in a strong uh, southerly in Newport without sinking. Um, the ninth factor was networking in the sailboat racing world. Our Olympic sailing and 470 campaigns in between 70 and 74, my role as secretary treasurer of the US Olympic Yachting Committee and as founding chairman of the US Youth Championship in 73, put us in touch with most top sailors and sailmakers in the country. To promote the first J24 one design regatta at Key West in January 78, a letter went to every sailmaker stating, do your loft and your best customer a favor, buy a J24 and come to Key West. They all came, John Colius, Dave Ullman, Mark Cloak, Tom Whitten, Bob Barton, Bill Allen, Scott Allen, Vince Broom, Gordy Bowers, Augie Diaz, Neil Fowler, Rick Rajarino, Larry Leonard, Jim and Charlie Scott, and Gary Weissman and others. Then they left and spread the word. J24 was the boat. The 10th factor is a willingness to license overseas to build international classes. Having managed Quaker subsidiaries in Colombia and Venezuela for eight years, to me, licensing builders, first in the US too, and then overseas was a logical step to becoming an international class. It started with Japan during the 1977 Block Island Race Week. This is a funny story. Photographer and erstwhile kamikaze pilot, Fred Nakajima, got his best friend, Suji Watanabe, who is Japan's World War II submarine designer and Nissan Motors Marine Consultant to sign up Nissan. Over hundred J24s were sold through Nissan car dealers in Japan. Then came England, Brazil, Argentina, Australia, Italy, South Africa, and France. The 11th factor is the advertising efficiency of an umbrella brand name. Rather than each design with its own name like laser or star, the sale logo of J for Johnstone over the design length meant advertising for new boat designs kept older designs alive. Jay had good vibes from the J-class yachts of the 1930s. But this was, when Rod came up with that uh, logo, seven, this was seven years before Elizabeth Myers revived Endeavor uh, to create any kind of a conflict. And then the 12th and final factor is taking risk as a market leader. Um, in 1977, it was a planing keelboat with dinghy hull and fractional rig not designed to a CCA or IOR rule like most of the other boats. The underbody of the J24 looked a lot like Rod's 505 or Thistle. In fact, Jack Knights of Yachts and Yachting called it the laser with a lid, which got J24s off to a roaring start in Europe. 30 sold at the first, 19, first which was 1979 London Boat Show. 15 years later in 1992, a retractable bowsprit and asymmetric spinnaker on J105. On the J105 completely repositioned the brand with models and decimeters instead of feet. And both of those, both of, both of those events um, caused the entire market to follow in behind J-Boat's leadership position. Now that, that, those dozen factors wrap up my uh, summary of the the, the, what was behind um, the, the original and also the eventual J-Boat success. 
Now we went through after that three basic design periods, which really paralleled our aging franchise of the baby boomers. There you have it, the creation story of J-Boats. Check out the gallery. Bob and Rod have a specially curated collection of vintage shots, their own mini Rosenfeld collection. And thank you for listening to this live stream format. It's a bit of a departure. Tell us how you like it. I'm at tcdforsale2 at gmail.com. And visit the website at conversationswithclassicboats.com. Tell us what you like, what you'd like to hear, who you'd like to see. Our next couple of shows have something new and something old. The new, Classic Power. We want to reach out to our brethren in the powerboat world, a little like we did with the Dire Dow episode. And we'll do it in the form of a whodunit about another iconic American design, the Boston Whaler. We hope to do this session from the Mystic Seaport Museum. And finishing this pre-summer segment of Season 2, it's a trip down memory lane to Barnegat Bay, mantle-loking, hotbed of bay competition for 100 years plus. And visiting with some old friends, we call the session A-Cats, Sneak Boxes, and Duck Boats. And we all hope that we're all sailing by then. So thanks, Bob. Thanks, Rod. Thank you, the listener. Thanks for listening to Conversations with Classic Boats. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Apple Podcasts, Google Play. Now coming, the new podcast giant, Spotify. And give us a review. Five stars, please. This episode was produced by Ned Darling in Peachum, Vermont. Stay safe and keep someone else safe if you can. Fair sailing. And come back and listen to the podcast that talks to boats. Conversations with Classic Boats. And we'll roll the old chariot along. We'll roll the old chariot along. We'll roll the old chariot along. And we'll all hang on behind. And a drop of Nelson's blood wouldn't do us any harm. A drop of Nelson's blood wouldn't do us any harm. A drop of Nelson's blood wouldn't do us any harm. And we'll all...